Greetings and welcome to the worship services of Alamo First Baptist Church. I'm Brother Chris Rigby. I'm standing here this morning in front of our bell. This is the original bell that was at our old location uh, years ago. It uh, was there when the church was first built and it was always a call to worship. Well, when we moved to our new campus here several years ago, we brought it with us. And not too long ago, we got to put it up. We're so excited about it because it reminds us that we're coming together into this building to worship. And we are excited that today you've decided to tune in to our broadcast to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you will see the great love that Jesus has for you and the great love that we have for you as well this morning as we worship together. We look forward to meeting you and your family and we invite you to be a part of any of our worship services, our activities or ministries here. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is just drop us a line at our email address, alamofirstbaptist at gmail.com. All of it spelled out, just gmail.com, alamofirstbaptist. We look forward this morning to worshiping with you. We pray God's blessings upon you and your family as we go inside now and we worship together. Let's go ring that bell for Jesus.
our goal this year is five thousand dollars. We've got some uh, prayer brochures that are on the table, and we've also got some envelopes for you to for you to give uh, to Eddie Armstrong. And uh, I know that you'll want to do that, but uh, be sure to pick those up. We'll make sure that maybe next week the kids can give out some sort of prayer brochures. Pray, all of us can pray for our missionaries, particularly in our own backyard here in North America, as we try to reach those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that the youth today have their Christmas dinner, right? What time? Six o'clock. Any questions? Moved it up just a little bit. So six o'clock, they need to be here by what's right? For Ezra Emerson Road is where you need to be. That's where you need to go. If you have any questions, see Brian. He'll, he'll take care of that. I forgot the question. But anyway, it, it's good to see you this, this morning. Let's have a word of prayer as we open up our worship together and also as we uh, commit our offering as we give it through the week to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning for our time of worship. Just all the things going on in our church, the new things that we're getting to do again and reopen. And Lord, we pray for just not today, but the weeks ahead, particularly Easter Sunday morning as we just celebrate your resurrection. Pray for Lord just our youth that they enjoy fellowship tonight. And Lord, for all things that comes in through the week and the things that we get to do for the kingdom work, we are always so very thankful for it. And Lord, we just ask you to bless those things. Be with us today. Speak to us. Draw us close to you, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. It's good to see you here this morning. Won't you stand with us as we continue to worship today? Oh, 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 oh,
love happens a lot that we we live in going through something, whether it's a, a relationship struggle or the death of a loved one or an addiction, that that we're trying to encompass that in our own. And it's only when we come to that the end of our strength that we see how how great God's strength is. So we're going to go a little old school on this one. Stand still, Chapman. Uh, remember, this strength is perfect even if you're ever trying to play this one. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but sometimes I wonder what He can do through me.
Bible this morning, and would you open to John chapter 12, our little guide to make your way to Children's Church. Also, you can take and open to Philippians chapter 2. Those are the two places we'll be at this morning together. And we're in our series, The Strange Glory of Easter, The Strange Glory of of the cross. I guess it's really the strange glory of the cross and of Easter. War Jim was a novel that was written by Joseph Conrad. It's the story of a young British seaman named Jim. He was a first mate on a ship that was full of pilgrims that were making uh, a trip to Mecca for Hajjah. In the middle of the night, disaster struck, though. And uh, the ship, the, the, the hull was ruptured, and uh, the ship began to sink and sinking slowly. All this was happening, though, while the passengers were asleep. Jim Hawes, in the novel, at this fruitful moment, he decides not to spare the whole ship awake, knowing that there really aren't enough lifeboats to save all the passengers. So the crew captain decides to save themselves, and they spill away in the dead of night, and Jim goes with them, leaving the pilgrims to their watery grave. The next morning, Jim and the crew are rescued, and they fabricate a story about their escape, only to discover that their abandoned ship and their passengers had also been rescued. The captain and the crew obeyed the court of inquiry. However, Jim was left having to answer the charges all alone. In the novel, you find out that he is devastated by his cowardice. He's overwhelmed with shame. Before this, Jim had the idea about himself that he was a daring fellow, brave fellow. He was idealistic, and he was also very thoughtful towards others. He was really what you would say would be the first fate of a boat full of pilgrims was meant to be an admirable young man. But in the moment of his testing, his true character came out. And it came out not just to himself, but to the world. And having learned of this knowledge, this self-knowledge of himself, he is devastated. Conrad's novel is a classic story that conveys that perennial theme that you find in other great books and novels. It's the story of someone trying to come to terms with something that they've done and can never undo. Jim discovers something about himself that he doesn't like. And perhaps the worst of all horrors is that what was true about him was true even before that pivotal moment of decision. It simply took a crisis to reveal what was really inside his heart. And when we look at the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's, that's what we're finding out this morning. What is at the center of his heart? Our Savior. Conrad's uh, narrator in his novel says this of Jim, It is my belief no man ever understands quite his own artful dodge to escape from the grim shadows of self-knowledge. But you see, it's not just Jim. We all what, work very hard to hide the truth from ourselves, about ourselves, and from others. Humility 
it has been said, is reality. It's coming to see ourselves as we truly are before God. And this revelation is always wounded. We stand exposed when we see ourselves for who we are. When we see ourselves as the world sees us, as Jim did. And we wonder with that kind of grim self-knowledge, can we be made whole? Jim was humbled. It was a, a painful humbling. Julian Norwood, who was a religious thinker in the Middle Ages, said this, first there is the fall, and then there is the recovery from the fall, but both are the mercy of God. That is, we are introduced to the mercy of God when we see ourselves for who we really are. And in the recovery of that fall and fall of itself, how we're restored, we see the mercy of God. Being humble doesn't feel like God being kind to us, but it is. It feels more like death. But that's the way of the cross. That's what we're celebrating in our passion season. Going the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the way of humility. The crisis of the cross reveals, I think, the heart of Jesus. And reveals to us something about Jesus that I think this morning we're going to find very surprising. Maybe surprising in the fact that it's so primary, so prioritized in the heart of Jesus. And that is that we see that Jesus has a heart of humility. His life and his death and his resurrection is all one great act of great divine humility. And I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps the greatest victory that Jesus won on the cross was not the victory over sin or Satan, what we typically think. Not the victory over our deserted death and judgment, what we give so much thanks for. But the greatest victory that Jesus won was the victory of humility. Humility in action. I don't know about you, but the hardest enemy to defeat, for me, is me. The hardest victory to win is the one I have to win over my own self. I will say, uh, Miss Dean was asking me earlier before service, she said, well, how did the diet go this week? Did you and the donuts win? And I said, well, the good news is the donuts didn't defeat me. But the cherry rolls were a different story. It's hard to say no to self, isn't it? And that's what Jesus had to do in the cross. To say no to himself. Bernard Corvold, uh, uh, who was a, a writer, a Christian philosopher, wrote a treatise on the steps of humility and pride. He said this about Jesus. Christ had all the virtues. You know what the virtues are, for example? Holiness, perfection, righteousness, and there's, there's a long list of virtues. Christ had all of them, but although he had them all, he especially commended one of them to us in himself, and that of humility. And Jesus said, Look, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. 
Let me give you some verses before we get to our main text this morning. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse is what? About humility. Christ died to self for our good. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or John 13, verses 14 through 16. If I then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, Jesus said. Listen, listen. Verily, verily, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In Philippians 2, 8, we're going to look at it in further detail. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility is God's response to humanity. Humility is God's way of appearing to us through Jesus. He could have chosen any other virtue. He could have appeared to us as the holy, holy, holy God of heaven. But he didn't. He possessed all those virtues in perfect measure. But it is this virtue that Jesus signaled out. It is this virtue that Jesus took out of who he was and pulled it out of his heart and put it on display to our world for us to learn and for us to follow. For us to become like Jesus, we have to commit to walk in the path of humility. Humility is not seen as the most attractive virtue, yet a good argument to be made that humility is the one virtue that dominated the, the, the life of Christ on earth more than any other virtue. We could say that Jesus was all wise, all courageous, all holy, all perfect, all just, all righteous. But do we, do we, do we really think of being all humble first about Jesus? Is that the greatest virtue? But that's the one that he said, I want you to see. That's the one I want for you to reproduce in your life, the Lord said. And so I want us to reimagine humility today. I want us to, today, as when we look at the cross, to, to, to re-grasp it and understand what Jesus is sharing from his heart, and that it is the heart of humility. Now look with me at John chapter 12, beginning with verse 27. This has been our passage for the series. And what we've been doing is in this kind of passion verse here, where, you know, we started a few weeks ago where Jesus talked about the victory over Satan and Satan being cast out. We've built upon this verse, but there's just so much here to unpack and pull out. Now look at verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. His mind is on the cross. It's been stirred up by those Greeks. We talked about that last week. And he said, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That was on his mind. Let this cup pass from me. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. We talked about that last week. That moment, that hour that Jesus came for. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
the third time the Father speaks from heaven. Well, thought that uh, when they heard it, they, they thought it was an angel. They thought it was thunder. But Jesus answers in verse 30, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I will be lifted up from the earth, and I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about his crucifixion. Now, notice what he says in verse 13, or, or what we told, or told. He said this, now listen, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, when I read that, and I always have read back what he's talking about, what he just said in verse 32, about being crucified, and I do believe that's true. But I think there's more to it than that. Jesus isn't just showing the physical picture of what's going to happen to him. But Jesus is showing the kind of death that he's going to die that is going to show the picture of his heart to us. And so the crowd uh, answered him and said, Well, we've heard uh, for the law that, that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. In other words, do what I've shown you to do. Follow in the way of the cross, is what he's saying. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going while you have the light. While you have this example, believe in the light that you may become sons, that you may be daughters of the light, that you may be children of the light. The cross reveals the heart of Jesus, a heart of humanity. Two things today I want you to see. Number one, the cross reveals Christ's eternal heart of humility. Look over in Philippians chapter 2. I think Paul puts it there to the letter uh, to Philippi a little bit better than maybe uh, anywhere else in the Bible. Beginning in verse 8, listen uh, through verse uh, Verse 5 through verse 8. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, have, in, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's being humbled, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's so many words there that, that speak so much to it, but there's one word in particular that I want you to hear in verses 5 through 8. It's the word form, F-O-R-N. It's used in verse 6, it's used in verse 7. And it is used in verse 8. In verse 6 and 7, the word is morpha. It's that Greek word. Uh, properly understood, it is the nature or the essence of a being. Not in an abstract sense. Not just, it's not just something that is ethereal, but it's something that's real. It's something that, that is actually of that substance. In other words, this pulpit is a wooden pulpit because it is made of wood. It is 
as it's applied to God, it will always have that essence of being. And it, it, it will always be who He is. And so, in other words, Paul is saying Jesus Christ is, was, and always will be God. He is the essential being of God. He has always been, He continues to be, and He's unalterable in His essence. He is God. Now, we can probably better understand that word morphe by use of the other word that's used for the word form in verse 8 is the word uh, schemata, or schema. Both come from that, that we both uh, get that English word uh, form from those two words, but in the Greek, it's a little bit more distinct. Form, morphe, is the essential character of something. What it is itself, schema, is the outward form that it takes. Let me illustrate it for you so we can make some sense of it. I am a man. I possess manhood. I am, uh, I have possessed manhood since I was conceived. I have uh, possessed manhood uh, all through my life, and I will possess manhood all the way until I die. That's my morphine. I'm a man. That essential character of manhood is manifested in different ways. It's schema, or schema time. In other words, there was a time when I was an embryo. There was a time when I was a baby. There was a time when I was a child. There was a time that I was a boy. There was a time that I was a teen and a youth. There was a time that I was a young man. And now there's a time that I'm an adult. One day I'll be an old man. But right now, I am in the very prime of my life. Amen? (laughs) That's schema. How you see me as a man has changed through time. But I'm still a man. Have been, will be, always. Paul is saying that Jesus always existed in an unchangeable essence of being God. Jesus is unequivocally God. However, and don't miss this, Verse 8, being found in human schematic, he's changed. How did he change? By humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of cross. Think of the word fashion. Jesus fashioned himself into a man. The Bible dictionary says this. Men saw in Christ a human form, bearing language, action, and mode of life. In general, the state and relation of human beings, so that in the entire mode of his appearance, he made himself known and was recognized as a man. In other words, if you saw Jesus when Jesus was here on earth, you would have seen a man. You go out somewhere today and you go out to eat or something and you, you see some strange man walk by. That's what Jesus would have looked like. Just another ordinary guy. That was at the same time the God of glory. The God. The sovereign 
God of glory, the one who rules the planets, the universe, the one who rules every molecular cell in this universe, the one who holds the singular glory of God, glory himself, fashion himself, to be human. Let me ask you this question, put to you this way. Suppose this morning you had Superman powers. Or for you ladies, I'll say you were suit, you were Wonder Woman, alright? I mean, you know, you, you, you see, see the movies and the comic books. I mean, Superman, and he's a good looking dude, and Wonder Woman, she's, she's a pretty girl. But not only that, they got superpowers. Now imagine for a moment, you, you, you got all of that. You got it all going on, right? Be Superman or Wonder Woman? Let me ask you a question. Would you give it up just to be a regular dude or a regular girl? I mean, you know, just say, oh, I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to give up the ability to fly and jump and, you know, outrun a locomotive and, you know, do all. I don't know about you. I don't know that I could give up the Bible. That would be pretty well wrong, wouldn't it? But isn't that what God did? Isn't that what Christ did? And when did he do it? The Bible says that Christ died before the foundations of the world. I mean, folks, before the, the first Adam came in existence in this dimension, in this universe, in this world that we know, Christ had already purposed in his heart, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to give up my superpowers. I'm going to stop being God in the way that I've been God, and I'm going to be one of the lowest of creatures I've ever created in terms of strength, power, and sovereignty. I'm going to be human. The whole business of the cross, the whole business of Easter is so very strange when we consider the major player in it, and that being God himself. Who could have imagined such a thing? I don't know about you, but if you had said to me, and just maybe me or you, and we were the only ones in the world, and we had to dream up a story about God. I don't know that I could have dreamed up this story that we are told from God about who He is. I think I would have been more in line of trying to, to explain God the way the Greeks and, uh, had explained God and all their mythical stories, you know, and, and, and their uh, uh, demigods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, or, or trying to explain God as a sun god or this moon god or volcano god, but not the god of the Bible. That's just so unimaginable. I'm going to go, seriously, God, you lowered yourself to become one of us? Come on, man. You really want me to believe that? But that's what Christ did. And the cross reveals Christ's eternal heart of humility. Not just a singular moment. Not just for some three-hour stand or, or so when he was on the cross. Not just for some 33 years in which he walked this earth. From eternity past to eternity future. Because Christ is going to what? Continue to maintain that form in a glorified way. And he's going to bear the marks of Calvary for all eternity. Which brings me to a second thing. The cross relays Christ's exhortation to follow his heart of humility. 
Philippians 2. We're saved back up to the beginning of that verse. Paul says what? Have this mind among yourselves. Back up a little bit further. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. And so if there are any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Make no mistake, both of what Paul said, both of what Jesus says on the cross by way of his example, with what Jesus said in Matthew 11, uh, uh, verse 29, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. This is what I want for you. I am humble. I want you to be humble. Humility is actually some difficult thing to define. Even the idea of humility itself has been one that's changed in our world. In the ancient world, Almost nobody valued humility. It wasn't a virtue. It is more of a virtue today. Humility was not valued. It was actually spoken against. The Greco-Roman society held up as a virtue an honor. It was an honor culture. It was a shame and honor culture, as a matter of fact. Nothing mattered more than your family's honor, your own status, your own reputation. In the ancient world, greatness of soul was the crown of virtue. It was, it was, a, it was not only appropriate, but you were called to allow your 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 virtue to shine forth in excellence. But humility, being pride, inconceivable. But something happened. Something changed the way the world looks at the virtue of humility. What became a good and beautiful life by way of being humble entered this world. What happened? Can I tell you what happened? God became man. And God died as a man in order to save men. In a word, what happened? Jesus. Jesus happened. And unlike the Greeks and the Roman myths, that was not a God temporarily masquerading as a human. The real God, the sovereign God, the eternal God entered into time, and the infinite entered into the finite and became human and lived a human life and suffered a human death, even the death upon the cross. This is scandalous beyond words. Jesus humbled himself to display his greatness and his glory. What sort of God brings this up? What sort of God imagines this? What sort of God does this? To lower himself, to degrade himself, listen, to wash feet of men. What sort of God does this? Can I tell you what sort of God he is? A loving God. The God that so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. You see, therein lies the challenge 
He's called us to follow that self-same path. He's called for us to what? To deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow Him. Go back to John chapter 12. Look in verse 24. You remember what He said to the Greeks? They were asking about all these things, about what it means that the hour is come. In verse 24, Truly, truly, I'll say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant may be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Matter of fact, the one who cannot or will not follow Jesus in humility, Jesus says, is not worthy to follow him. What keeps us from doing this? What keeps us from living in humility the way Jesus lived in humility? Pride. It's what made the devil the devil. It's what keeps us from God. At the root of every sin is pride. The rich young ruler is often the one I think about when I think about this. Jesus struck at the centermost issue of his problem, pride. You remember the story we're told in Luke's Gospel, how he went away sad, knowing that eternal life was escaping him in that very moment. He had come, but he'd rather have the temporal things for self than the eternal things of the Savior. The rich young ruler is a lot like so many of the affluent people today. He already was living out his vision of the good life. He was rich, he was young, he had power. More than that, he thought he was really a good person. In the story, Jesus directed him to the law. And, and, and the ruler reported to the Lord, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't committed murder, I haven't stolen, I haven't lied, and, and I've even honored my parents. He was the poster child for your next son-in-law. I mean, he's the guy you want. Every one of the things you want in a, in a, in a good young man, he checked off the box. Jesus looked at him and he said, well, you lack one thing. And in Luke 18, verse 22, he says, See all that you have distributed to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. You know what he was telling him? He said, you have everything but humility. You can't follow me if you don't have a humble heart. Jesus cuts through all the clutter. He goes straight to the heart of the issue. And the rich young ruler was not looking for his entire life to be oriented around Jesus. You see, what he wanted was an additional thing in his life, not Christ to be the Lord of his life. He was just looking to add on things. A little bit more religion in his life, just a little bit more to, to sprinkle on uh, as the ingredients of what was going to make a real good life for himself. But he didn't want to, to bow the, the head and bend the knee. Anyone here today, anyone online today, just looking for a little bit more religion, looking for just a little bit more of making yourself feel better. You know, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs here, I remember studying that in school, and you know, the top thing is what? Self-actualization. We just feel good about ourselves. 
There's a lot of folks that are going to come to church, a lot of folks who have read through the Bible, a lot of folks that even walk an hour that have done that to make themselves feel better about themselves. But on that day when they get to heaven, they're going to hear the words that Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, I'm never with you. Because there was never humility of heart. And there's no denying what real humility is because Christ is the example. Christ has set the example. Do we want just a little more religion or do we really want a relationship? That's the fight, isn't it? The fight against pride. Can I tell you something that maybe you don't know or didn't think? That Jesus never permitted or prohibited his followers from pursuing greatness or even of getting a little glory in life. There are some Christians out there that have the idea that, well, if you are a Christian, you can't pursue greatness, and you can't even pursue having some glory in your life. The Lord doesn't say that. What Jesus does do is says that true greatness and true glory looks like this. And what is this? Humility. If you truly want to be great, if you truly want to know what glory is, you're humble. Jesus just simply redefines what true greatness is and what true glory is. Humility delights in greatness because humility understands it's not a means of self-glorification, but it is a, a, a way of service to others. Humility aspires to do a most excellent work in its life because it blesses others. Humility doesn't diminish our life. Jesus says humility leads to life. Unless that grain of wheat falls and dies, it cannot bear fruit. It cannot have meaning. It cannot have purpose. You want to live for self? You want to live in pride? Go ahead. Pride's what made the devil the devil. Pride is the root of all sin. But the opposite of pride is humility. Give in to Jesus. Embrace humility. Or you can choose to give in to Satan and embrace pride. But let me tell you something in closing today. Maybe something you've never considered before. If you give in to pride, if you don't deny yourself and take up the cross and follow the way of Jesus, then if you choose the road of the path of pride, you're cheating yourself. Maybe no one could have said it than Beth Morton put it in her book. And she was writing about how pride always seeks to cheat us. Listen to what she says. My name is Pride. I am a cheater. I cheat you of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you'll always say you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you will say, I already know it all. I cheat you of leaving because you're too full of yourself to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look at the mirror than out the window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because no one's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I teach you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash the feet of another. In other words, 
I've cheated you with God's glory because I've convinced you it's better to seek your glory. My name is Pride, and I'm a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. You don't know how true this is. I like making you look like a fool. God has so much more for you. I admit, but don't worry. You stick with me, says Pride, and you'll never know all of God. Don't let pride make a fool out of you. Don't let the devil make a fool out of you. The devil likes to point at the cross and say, what a fool Jesus was. But let me tell you, dear friend, the name that is above every name, and one day the name that every tongue on earth in heaven is the name of Jesus. And Jesus lives and lives to the heart of humanity. And if that's good enough for God, that's good enough for me. And if I want real greatness, if I want real glory, that means I've got to come to the cross Humble myself before God to take up His cross and follow the one self-same way. Jesus says, if I'm not willing to do that, I'm not worthy to follow Him. Are you worthy? Have you come to that moment? Yielded to self and surrendered to the Savior. Heavenly Father, this day, oh, how we reimagine the cross and the beautiful victory won by you, Jesus, the victory of humanity. Oh, how you love us. And Lord, we don't just come to the cross to view the cross and to say how beautiful the cross is. We come to the cross that we can be changed that we can be born again. That's what you told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you don't get the eternal life. You don't get the heaven. You don't get the beautiful life. You must be born again. I think we must die to ourselves. Unless we die, we just have no new life. Lord, today I pray that every everyone here, everyone listening to online, can say without any doubt, I know that I know that I know that I know I've been born again. And how I know that, Jesus, is that there has been a moment where I have come to the cross and you have asked me like you asked a rich young ruler, am I willing to lay all down to follow you? And we've said in our hearts, yes, I am. Lord, the proof of that is measured out in how we walk with you carrying that cross. Within our life, Lord, there is no humility. Within our life, there is no heart for others. Within our life, we are not like you, growing more like you every day. Then the truth, Lord Jesus, is, well, we've not died with him. 
We pray God's blessings upon you as you worship with us today. If God has led you to make a decision today for Jesus, we would love to hear about it. We invite you to come to our website, cometothecross.net. Our online decision card will allow you to tell us about the decision that you're making. All decisions, all contacts are kept private and are confidential. However, we would be able to pray for you and perhaps I'd even be able to call you and pray with you about what God has led you to do if you so desire. So fill out the form, let us know, and just know that we love you and God loves you. And we're excited that you're taking this first step for God today. Thank you.